Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Everyone and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest today is Rebecca Scales, the author of Radio and the Politics of Sound in and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest today is Rebecca Scales, the author of Radio and the Politics of Sound in Interwar France, 1921 to 1939. And the book was published by Cambridge University Press in 2016. Hi there, Rebecca. Hi, thanks for having me on the podcast. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Would you get us started by telling our listeners a little bit more about yourself and what got you interested in working on French history? Yeah, well, I'm currently um, a professor at the Rochester Institute of Technology in upstate New York, um, which is the appropriate place to be for a book on this topic. Mm -hmm. But um, I didn't really start out my career as a historian thinking about technology at all. But I've had a longstanding interest in French history since I was an undergraduate um, when I did a year of study abroad in France. And I was a double major in history and French in college. And so that gave me a chance to do a lot of original research as an undergraduate student. But I was one of those people that um, I think went to grad school because I didn't know what else to do Mm -hmm. (laughs) other than the fact that I loved history. And so... I think this book in many ways reflects the really varied training that I had as a master's and then a PhD student at Rutgers. And I went to Rutgers primarily to work with the great Bonnie Smith, and Mm -hmm. I had intended to uh, work on gender history because I was really interested in gender and mass culture, and then completely changed my topic as I got really interested in thinking about the history of the senses and the history of sound. So sound and the senses came first, and then radio. How did you come to this particular topic, to the focus on radio? Well, I was interested in mass culture generally and the way that mass culture shapes people's political subjectivities and and cultural ideas. And I was a little frustrated by the fact that, you know, pretty much all of the literature on mass culture was about visual culture and much of it was excellent and interesting, but no one had really written anything about sound. And so I, in some ways, really began this project with a set of kind of methodological questions about about sound, the place of sound in modern history. Mm -hmm. And then once I had a chance to start looking at primary sources related to um, radio and the phonograph and other sound media in the early 20th century, I just kind of knew that radio was what I wanted to study because I hadn't really read anything about radio in France that addressed questions about sound and what sound meant to French people when it came of age in, in the early 20th century. In the introduction to the book, Rebecca, you set the project up as a study of France's incipient auditory culture, and that's a quote from the from the introduction, in the interwar years. So this is really about the kind of coincidence of the immediate post-war period and then the decades after the First World War and the inauguration of radio and the spread of radio um, throughout France. So could you talk a little bit about how those two things come together at the same time and how you are contributing to our understanding of the interwar years in a new way more broadly? 
Sure. Um, I feel like I should maybe explain what I, in some ways, what I mean by auditory culture, because it's a term that I use a lot um, in the book. And from the moment I started working on the book, the questions that I were really interested or, or the, the principal question that I was interested in is what does sound mean or what did it mean to people at the time? Mm-hmm. And what I discovered very quickly in reading through a whole variety of primary sources from newspapers to scientific journals to medical journals is that there were these sort of enormous debates about sound that were taking place in the 1920s and 30s with among a whole variety of people, politicians, engineers, ordinary users, if you want to put it that way, of sound technologies. Um, and they were all engaged in questions about what did it mean to listen? How is a new culture of recorded and broadcast sound going to affect everyday life. Um, And that was the sort of starting place for the book. But I narrowed my research to radio in part because I became interested in the way that people were talking about radio specifically. Mm -hmm. Because on the one hand, people were fascinated by radio as a sound media. But on the other hand, it was very clear that from its very origins, radio was imagined as a de facto political media, as a, as, a, as a media that would have political implications. And so the argument that I try to lay out in the book um, is an argument about the development of a certain idea of radio over the course of the 1920s and 30s, which is something I called a radio nation. And is that essentially people began to imagine the airwaves as a kind of collective space in which they could come together to debate not only the definition and the shape of the body politic, but also who got to participate in it and the terms by which ordinary people could participate in political life. Um, and within that framework, listening, I argue, really came to be seen as a, as a practice of citizenship, but it's one whose meaning was never fixed. Mm-hmm. And it was contested by a wide variety of groups. And, you know, each chapter of the book is in many ways offering a different way of thinking about how the radio nation was imagined and contested and redefined during this very tumultuous period in French politics. You also make the point, Rebecca, that political subjectivity and sensory perception have historically been intertwined and that broadcasting transformed the experiential dimensions of citizenship. So could you talk a little bit more about that and how that takes shape specifically in the interwar period in France? Well, I think that um, one of the things that happens in France is that as this new media begins to expand and broaden, you see more and more people invested in this notion that having access to the airwaves and being able to listen to the airwaves is about inclusion in the nation state. Or in some cases, it's also about radio offering people the opportunity to perhaps trespass the boundaries of a particular political community and join in another one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that this is a re- important reminder of the way in which media affect how people engage with the world and far more than I would say the newspaper, which, you know, as Benedict Anderson and others have argued, contributed to a certain kind of nationalism. Radio was unique in the sense that it created this sensation of simultaneity, Mm -hmm. right? That you could be a participant in something that was happening right away, Mm -hmm. that you were a live audience member at a political rally or at a concert or whatever you were listening to. And so having access to the airwaves And having, as I argue in the book, the right to listen was something that became important to many, many people during this period. Um, And so questions about, you know, which social classes had access to the airwaves, whether the shape of the airwaves or the the space of the airwaves reflected everyone in the nation, these became incredibly political and incredibly important questions um, in the 1930s. 
So, Rebecca, maybe we should just back up for a second and, you know, if you could just give us a bit of a sketch of, like, the history of radio and the emergence of radio in France, like, just the kind of, you know, key milestones and moments, mm-hmm. like, when does radio start? Where does it come from? Can you just give us a kind of origin story of radio in France? Well, I mean, you know, radio technology was first used um, by the French army during the First World War, and the first public radio broadcast was actually um, from the Eiffel Tower, which had been uh, a radio tower used by the army, again, during the First World War. And so in the early 1920s, you had a number of radio stations that cropped up in Paris and then a little bit later in the provinces. And most of these were run by radio clubs of radio amateurs who were just interested in the technology and were kind of playing around with it. And then occasionally would begin to develop more sophisticated um, daily programming schedules. Um, It really wasn't until, well, I I should say radio began to, to grow a significant number of listeners in the 1920s, but it was still very much a hobby of of sort of bourgeois elites or kind of technophiles, particularly young men who called themselves sans-filistes who were really interested in um, not only receiving signals but transmitting signals and who learned Morse code and, and, and were sort of building radio sets at home. It's not really until the late 1920s that you see the state taking an interest in the development of a state broadcasting network. Um, but the other really unique feature of radio in France that distinguishes it in many ways from from other European countries is that France was the only country of the interwar decades that had both public and private stations. Hmm. And so there were a number of sort of commercial stations which which operated um, with funding from corporate advertisers, and then you had a, increasingly a state network that grew up over the 1930s. Um, And, you know, I guess one of the features of this is that the divide between public and private stations has long been understood to be the main story of radio um, during this period. Um, Much of the institutional history that has been written about broadcasting in France focuses on the battle over whether to permit commercial stations to exist and what their relationship to the state looked like um, versus the supposed failure of the state to really develop a sophisticated broadcasting network that could rival something like the BBC or the German national broadcasting system uh, that that developed under the Nazis. Um, And so I think one of the reasons why we don't really know as much as we might want to about radio in France is because there is this kind of narrative of decline that has existed, which, which suggests that somehow France and its state radio failed to meet up to the quality of the BBC or, mm-hmm. or the quality of the Italian fascist or German, you know, fascist networks and that French mm-hmm. politicians were somehow reluctant to use radio in the same kind of way. And there's a certain element of truth to that. But I also think that focus on institutional history has obscured what was, in fact, a really dynamic period in the history of radio in which there were lots of debates about how to use it that that then undergirded these these bigger questions about what it means to listen to the radio and what the purpose of sound is and the way that sound can um, transform and affect people. Um, mm-hmm. And so part of, you know, when I started the project, one of my immediate goals was to just in many ways move away from that kind of institutional history. It's important. It's been well documented. But it neglects, you know, this this unbelievable dynamic period in which there are these enormous debates about sound and what it means mm-hmm. and listening and what it means. 
So you made this point about it not being an institutional history. And, you know, just to kind of follow along with this idea of what the book isn't really focused on, you also make the point in the introduction that the point of this book is not to really focus on the content of radio programming or... So could you say a little bit more about that? Why not content and what instead of content? Yeah, well, I mean, I'll be straightforward and say that, you know, when I started working on this project... Um, I had some interesting content. Um, certainly, I think what people were listening to on the radio matters. Um, but it's actually very hard to work on radio content in this period because there is virtually no archive that documents radio content. Hmm. Um, there is a very small collection of radio f- plays, which are largely fictional plays, that exists. Um, and Joelle Newlander has really used those in her own hmm. work. But outside of that, there is very little in the way of actual transcripts of radio broadcasts. And so when you when you think about content in this period, the only way to access it is through other written documents. There are very few recordings from the period. I mean, they consist primarily of sort of fragmentary collections of political speeches. There are some advertising jingles that have remained, but even things like comedy programs or um, musical programs that were on both commercial and state stations, there are just no recordings of them, mm-hmm. so or very few. And so working with content is quite challenging. But as I mentioned before, I think that to some extent, I wasn't that interested in what people were listening to. I was interested in the fact that they were listening and trying to figure out what that meant to them and to others. Mm-hmm. So what about the balance, Rebecca, between people within radio and the world of radio, the people producing it, all of the sort of technical aspects, the bureaucrats, broadcasters, personalities, you know, administrators, all of those people, and people outside of radio sort of thinking about radio, whether they're listeners or whether they're, um, you know, politicians and others commenting on radio. How does that balance shake out in the book? Well, I think I have you know, a mixture of all of those voices in the book. Um, You know, uh, again, one of my goals was to kind of step away from institutional history in the sense that I wasn't that interested always in what a radio administrator might have to say on a particular day about the structure of the network. I was interested Mm -hmm. in bringing in as many different kinds of voices as I could Mm -hmm. who had opinions about radio. And I think one of the reasons why you know, my book has a slightly different narrative and a slightly different focus than some of the previous work that's been done on radio is that um, many of the people that I brought into the conversation were not necessarily politicians or, or radio administrators, but were doctors or public school teachers or ordinary listeners or disability activists who all had sort of different ways of thinking about radio and who were engaged in conversations that that maybe on the surface level don't even seem like they were about radio when in fact they really were. So in the first chapter, Rebecca, you talk about the first chapter entitled Radio Broadcasting in the Soundscape of Interwar Life. You talk about the, the I love this sort of phrase, the meanings of noise and quiet. And this is a chapter that's really focused on Paris and the kind of urban history of radio in France in these early years. So what can you tell us about how debates and questions about listening and radio are intertwined with the defining and the sort of interrogation of these ideas of noise and quiet. 
Yeah, well, I think the first chapter of the book, um, I wanted to do a couple of things. One was that it became clear to me very early on the project that to understand the significance of radio as an auditory media meant that you couldn't entirely separate it from everything else that was going on at the time, the, mm-hmm. the bigger sonic environment. And it's partly because radio was part of a, a kind of broader sound revolution, if you want to call it that, so that at the moment that radios begin to um, reach wider swaths of the population, there's also democratization of gramophones, of loudspeakers, of all these other sound technologies that happen at the same time. Mm-hmm. And that the way people imagine and engage with radio is shaped by the fact that they're part that, that radios are part of this larger sound revolution. And the other piece of, of that chapter that I think is really important is that we tend to think of radio as being this sort of exclusively domestic media, when in fact it's really not. Right. I mean, how many books have you read that said like the significance of radio as a medium is about the fact that it it's a public media penetrating the private sphere? And on the one hand, that's true. But on the other hand, I discovered very quickly that radio um, disrupts these notions of public and private in many, many more complex ways. And so one of the ways in which people first encounter radio was actually in public spaces. And so that radio is associated with this new problem of noise mm-hmm. that that seems to emerge after World War One, and that becomes incredibly important in the 1920s, leading to a range of, of noise abatement campaigns. And if you look at complaints about noise, one of the things that you can see is the way in which radio and other sound media are themselves democratized across different sectors of French society. Um, and certainly radio in France was initially an urban media. Most people, I mean, the first radio stations grew up in Paris. So the first people who had access to radio, both in public spaces like cafes or even in these live radio demonstrations where they went to see the technology work, you know, you can't mm-hmm. see invisible signals, um, that it was a media that was very much associated with, with public and collective listening and, and, and with the kind of noise of the city. Mm-hmm. And so then if you look at the democratization of radios into people's homes, this is when you begin to hear complaints about noise and radio becoming a a main source of noise, both in Paris and in regional cities. Um, And so I was sort of interested in the tension between ideas about noise and quiet and what they can tell us about listening in the 1920s. And, well, in 1928, the the Touring Club de France as part of a, well, created a national noise abatement campaign, but it was focused primarily on cities. And they hired sound engineers to try and measure the noise of cities. And one of the, one of the targets of these campaigns was, of course, loud uh, radios. Because if you imagine living in a city like Paris, where everyone has a radio turned on in the evening, you can imagine the cacophony that both spills into buildings, but also onto the street. Mm-hmm. So looking at these debates about noise abatement gives us a way to sort of understand, I think, how radio spread, but also it shows the emergence of what I would call a kind of everyday politics of listening, where there were little fights about how and when it was acceptable for people to listen to the radio, how loud they could turn up their radio, and that, that these debates were, were sort of bound up with the birth of the medium itself. In this chapter, you raise some of the questions about the sort of divisions and differences in terms of gender and class and geography. So could you say a little bit more about how that works in Paris in this early chapter and then how you're using those categories and ways of thinking about difference throughout the book? Well, I think that, you know, one of the important things I realized when I was 
writing the book is that, again, when I talk about this idea of the radio nation and the, the idea that the airwaves progressively came to sort of embody the nation, that within that, there are these kind of overlapping and separate radio publics. So it's possible for people to join and leave radio publics at different times. And that, you know, depending on the type of radio that you had or where you lived, that had an impact on your ability to participate in this broader radio nation that was taking shape. Mm -hmm. So radio really was very much a kind of urban phenomenon in the 1920s. You know, Certainly, the mo- most people who could afford to buy radios until at least around 1930 were wealthy bourgeois families, and radio had this kind of bourgeois association um, that was really it was associated very much with the wealthy. The one exception to that was if you were one of these sans-fidistes who had technical knowledge and you were sort of building your radio at home in the attic and listening in. So there were these mm-hmm. two very different kinds of publics in the 1920s. But then by around 1933, 34, radio really had become more of a mass media and there were actually deliberate marketing efforts to reach out to working class audiences, but also to reach out to audiences outside of Paris. So, you know, although there were these primary radio stations that were becoming kind of flagship national stations in Paris, there were by 1930 regional stations as well that people could listen into or even foreign stations that people were listening into. And there was a much bigger attempt to market radios to uh, the working classes that you began to see in, in the early 1930s. Mm-hmm. So those kinds of shifts, I, in some ways, undergird the, the later chapters of the book. I mean, the first chapter is a sort of broad coverage of, of the democratization of radio. The later chapters, I think, um, tie listening to these particular moments of transformation. So the second chapter of the book is very much about a model of listening that developed in the early 1920s. But the fourth chapter of the book is very much about a particular kind of listening that was being cultivated in the late 1930s when radio had become more of a mass media and was more, it was directed more uh, specifically at the working classes. In the second chapter of the book, Rebecca, you move on to talk about disabled veterans, this idea of radio citizenship, and the politics of national recovery. So how does the history of radio in France in this period come together with the history of the veteran post-war recovery and the idea of sort of national regeneration? Well, I mean, this was the first chapter of the book that I wrote and the first chapter that I really began researching. And, you know, as I, as I mentioned before, one of the very first things that I noticed when I started looking at sources from the period was this sort of re- this obsession with listening as a kind of blindness. Um, and, and given, and the notion that when one is listening to the radio, one is blind because one cannot see the person speaking or the environment that's being recorded and re- and, and then represented over the airwaves. And so, so this discourse about listening as a form of blindness was everywhere. And certainly it, it then went on to become a kind of canonical part of some early radio theory. But what was fascinating to me as well was that I very quickly began to find discussions about blind people listening to the radio. And naturally, in the wake of the First World War, you have close to a million men who have lost their sight in the trenches. Mm-hmm. And the associations between radio and, and veterans um, came together in a whole variety of ways. I mean, veterans were very active in these radio clubs that developed in the 1920s that promoted radio. But it became interested primarily in the way that radio was being imagined as a kind of a way to bring back men who otherwise would have been excluded from civil society or who spent most of their time at 
home, um, who couldn't work for a variety of reasons, that, that the airwaves was a way to sort of reintegrate them into civil society and bring them kind of back into national life. And that in, in this context, this is when you see that listening itself is, is constructed by a whole range of, of different players, politicians, physicians, um, and even some veterans themselves as a kind of proxy citizenship, right? It gives them a way to participate again in national life. Mm-hmm. And the, the origin of this discourse, uh, it's, it's hard to trace, but it certainly was bound up in this radio program that was one of the first, I guess you'd call it first national programs that developed in the 1920s called Radio for the Blind. And it was a variety show that was on one of the state, early state radio networks, and it raised money to donate receivers to blind people in general, although it was very clear that blind veterans were really the target of this. And I looked very closely at the language that was being used to sort of market radio to these blind men, and it was very much built around notions of replacement, in which listening itself was seen as a replacement for the loss of vision that these men experienced um, in the trenches, and that sound was, you know, in many ways becoming a kind of prosthesis for their lack of sight. In this chapter, Rebecca, you also talk about the distinction between and a kind of tension between the blind and the deaf. Could you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, well, one of the surprising things that I discovered as I started digging more into this issue of blindness and blind veterans was when I was that there were, in fact, a lot of men who lost their hearing at the front, who felt very neglected in French society and felt like they were sort of pushed to the side. Um, But they also found ways to use radios as literal hearing aids, um, as kind of amplifying devices, both for everyday conversations, but also themselves to listen to the airwaves. And one of the places this first became clear to me was when I looked at a series of parliamentary debates about um, exempting blind people from the state radio license, which was a, you know, a fairly hefty fee imposed on radios. And suddenly in the midst of these parliamentary debates, these deaf, um, and, I, and I hesitate to use the word deaf because I don't mean capital capital D deaf, because these are not people who associate in any way with what we might think of as a uh, deaf community or with users of French sign language, but they're hard of hearing men who come out in Parliament and say, well, we deserve radios too, because they are actually functioning as literal prostheses, not 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 sort of metaphorical prostheses, mm-hmm. and we're talking about listening, but but actual physical prostheses that help us, you know, acquire our hearing. And this was a kind of fascinating use for radio technology that had had really never occurred to me. Right. Um, and I think it reminds us a little bit of of the ways in which, as this technology is coming into being, different groups find different ways to use it, and then also stake political claims. Mm-hmm. So. On the one hand, you have these blind veterans who are saying to the state, you should give us tax-exempt radios because listening replaces our absent vision, and this is a way for us to participate in this radio nation that's emerging. And then you have these deaf people who are saying, but what about us? (laughs) We also deserve that right, too. And what I found so interesting about these debates about veterans is that it's really in this context that you begin to see the way that, that access to the airwaves but also listening itself is becoming politicized as something which is essential to the exercise of citizenship. It's one of the more fascinating things. I mean, there's so many fascinating things about the book, but one of the things that I found really captivating was something I guess I hadn't really thought about. I mean, I've thought about politics in terms of a right to speak (laughs) 
and to be to be heard and to have a presence. But I hadn't really thought about this thread that you kind of follow throughout the book, this idea of the, the right, a rights discourse around listening. So do you feel like the book is making a contribution or challenging some of the ways that uh, some of the scholarship on disability more broadly, Rebecca? Well, I mean, one of the things that I discovered when I was researching this book is that there really isn't a very substantial literature at all on disability in France. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And so, um, you know, sort of... There, there have been some things that have come out since I published the book, um, like Bruno Caban's really has, has a mm-hmm. great chapter on disabled veterans in his new book. Um, but there really wasn't very much about this at the time. And so I think that what was important for me was to show that radio gave people with disabilities a way to have a stake in, in national politics in a way that maybe people hadn't really imagined before, you know, um, and that, that these debates about this new media were were vital to a large and substantial group of the French population who felt excluded in other ways. And so I think that in that sense, it opens up some new areas for thinking about how people with disabilities interact with civil society. Because I think that the assumption often is that during this period in particular, people with disabilities are very much pushed to the side, that they're not engaged at all in politics. Um, Certainly, there's a literature on disabled veterans that, that challenges that. To, to a certain extent. But I mean, I think that um, disability is just something which is sort of rarely discussed in the context of citizenship in France, outside of sort of the literature on pensions and compensation. You go on in the book, Rebecca, to talk about the relationship between this radio nation in the French context and a sort of wider international field of other radio networks. France's uh, dissemination or broadcasting abroad, but also the presence or the the listening to uh, foreign radio within France, um, and this idea of radio's internationalism. So, when you use the term cosmopolitanism here, what are you referring to exactly? Well, one of the things that I became really interested in, and, and that was, I guess, striking to me when I first came to this topic, was, as I suggest in the book, the kind of inherent internationalism of radio. And I think that, you know, as somebody who grew up in the United States um, and who didn't really live anywhere close to a border, the idea of sort of cross-border listening wasn't something that really even occurred to me. But when you begin mm-hmm. to read um, the radio newspapers of the 20s and 30s, you see that, in fact, you know, French people are regularly t- tuning in to broadcasts from all across Europe. And that when we think about the airwaves as a constellation of radio signals in the 1920s and 30s, that people can really listen to broadcasts from almost anywhere in, in the continent if they choose to. Um, and there are, tech, there are a whole variety of technological reasons for that. Um, but when I talk about cosmopolitanism in, in this chapter, what I'm sort of interested in is, is, is why it was in the 1920s that people were so fascinated with international listening. Um, because as radio is coming into being in France, many of the early sort of radio enthusiasts were primarily interested in listening to foreign signals rather than French ones. Um, they love to pick up stations in Prague or the Milan or, you know, from London. And this was part of the excitement of radio was about this notion of kind of transcending borders and transcending space to 
imagine oneself as a kind of world traveler. Mm-hmm. And you see in much of the descriptions of radio that uh, that come from sort of listeners' memoirs or in radio newspapers of the period or even in advertisements, a celebration of this notion of cosmopolitanism, that by tuning into the airwaves, you can become a more diverse cosmopolitan person who has access to all of these different cultures. Mm-hmm. Now, how much did that really sink in with the average French population? This is really, this is a difficult question to answer. And I I can't entirely answer it in my book. Um, But part of what I was fascinated with was just this notion of radio as a medium that in in some ways is difficult to use as a national medium because people can listen to so many diverse broadcasts. And what about this question of the attempts to make a distinct French radio reflective of a French national culture in the face of challenges or competition by foreign sounds? Well, I mean, part of what I was trying to do in the second chapter was to think specifically about the relationship between sound and space, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And the fact that radio starts out as this kind of international media, but what begins to happen by the late 1930s is that there are so many different radio stations broadcasting um, on the continent of Europe that there is a huge amount of interference. And there are two two responses to this from radio listeners and from radio clubs and other kind of stakeholders in, in the French radio community. And this is one that, you know, the reason why French people can't hear French voices sufficiently is because because France doesn't have a strong enough state radio network. And the other one is that, you know, someone has to do something about this problem of radio interference. And so in this chapter, I look at sort of two phenomena that happen at the same time. One is the formation of, of France's initial state radio network through something called the Ferrier Plan, and the way in which stations were constructed according to that plan in a way that was supposed to represent the different regions of France and distribute radio in in what the policymakers at the time called a democratic way across France. Um, And the way in which this national plan for radio was complicated by a broader international attempt to regulate the radio spectrum. Mm -hmm. And that to me was fascinating in and of itself because the organization that takes on that role in the 1920s is, is called the International Broadcasting Union and it was headquartered in Geneva. And so it very quickly came to be understood by a lot of listeners and policymakers as a kind of legal of nations of the airwaves. And the job of the IBU was to essentially map out or order the radio spectrum in such a way that there wasn't interference between radio signals. And one of the ways they did that was to put distant stations next to one another on the radio spectrum. So you might have, for example, a station in Russia that would be next to a French station or a station in Italy that would be next to, you know, a station in Belgium or in Scandinavia. And the idea behind this was to prevent the sort of mutual interference or what people at the time often talked about um, in, in spatial terms as a kind of border crossing. And there were a whole set of complex formulas that went into this that had to do with the transmitting powers of stations. Um, and so what I look at in this chapter is the efforts of the French state to kind of negotiate a place for France's own, own radio stations within these broader European conferences. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it worked out well, and other times it didn't work out very well at all. But one of the things that began to happen over the course of the 1920s and 30s is that listeners looked to these conferences as a way to sort of regulate the international radio sphere, but also the domestic radio sphere. And they made assessments about the state's ability, the French state's ability to protect their interests as listeners based on what they could and could not hear. 
and the amount of static that they heard in their radios versus signals. Is it the case, Rebecca, that radio is exemplary of what we might think or know or about the French state in this period, or does a focus on radio change the way that we think about the French state in this period? I think that what my book shows in terms of how the state dealt with radio is a significant amount of interaction between ordinary people and the mechanisms of the state. Mm -hmm. That is to say that you know, this thing called the radio nation that emerges, this this auditory space composed of French stations, but 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 that shifts over the course of the 1920s, um, as new stations emerge, as as old stations die, as you know, as new foreign stations kind of interfere in the in the French airspace, that what you see is is various state actors interacting with radio listeners who push back against certain kinds of initiatives um, that they feel limit their right to listen in particular kinds of ways. Mm-hmm. And so, to some extent, I suppose. Uh, I feel like radio highlights a certain kind of, of dynamism that exists where on the one hand you see listeners pushing back against the state when they feel like it's impinged on their listening um, in certain kinds of ways. But then on the other hand, you also see them demanding greater state intervention in other, in other contexts with regard to radio when they feel like the state hasn't done enough to develop this thing that they imagine as the radio nation. So there's a lot of, uh, of ambivalence back and forth. Um, and to some extent, I think that is unique to radio. I think radio highlights that phenomenon in a rather interesting way. So Rebecca, while the whole book is engaged with this issue of the politics of sound and the political uses of of sound and radio and of listening and the debates about those things. Um, The last two chapters are even more focused on the use of radio uh, for sort of pointed political purposes. So in chapter four, you're really focused on the Popular Front's use of radio as a kind of educational tool. So could you say a little bit more about how radio in this period and during the era of the Popular Front intersects with this major Republican institution and program of, uh, of education? Yeah, I mean, you know, again, this chapter really grew out of what I saw was an, a really fascinating debate about listening to the radio in public school classrooms that had, had really not ever been looked at very seriously. And it, it also gave me a way to think about the Popular Front, which, um, when it came into power in 1936, for the very first time, had more control over the airwaves than any previous government had. And that had to do with some administrative changes that had taken place, which I won't really elaborate in detail now, but mm-hmm. but that the Popular Front had a considerable amount of political power for the first time to really reshape the airwaves to mirror the image of the of, of the government. And it's very clear that radio fit into the agenda of a, of a number of Popular Front politicians who were interested in this idea of democratizing culture. And they saw one way to do that through reforming the Republican school classroom. Um, and again, you know, many historians have written about the Popular Front's educational policies, um, Pascal Ori to cite just one. But what was interesting to me was the way that they thought about using radio to try and eliminate some of the deeply profound class differences that they believed existed in France. And so the idea of installing radios in classrooms across France um, and then having students listen to these largely Paris-based school broadcasts was seen as a way to kind of bridge the divide between urban and rural students that many people thought was kind of 
the basis of the political divide in France at that time, but also a way um, to promote a certain kind of democratized French culture. You have this kind of great turn of phrase in the chapter, the pedagogy of the ear. Could you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, well, when I started looking into these broadcasts that were actually created by the Popular Front, one of the things that I discovered very quickly was that there there was actually some serious thought that went into them, and that there were pedagogical theorists in the early 1930s that were thinking seriously about what what sound media like the phonograph and the radio meant for auditory education. Mm-hmm. Um, and so even before the Popular Front had come into power, there was a kind of movement among some Paris-based pedagogues to develop this kind of pedagogy of listening. And the idea was um, that you could train the ear to uh, do certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly the pro- one of the primary goals of this pedagogy of listening was actually to shape the way that students um, spoke. Right. So in a country where lots of people were still speaking um, regional dialects, how could you use listening to actually train people to speak differently? Um, mm-hmm. Or how could you use radio to um, train students to appreciate great works of music? And so there was a whole kind of theory about the way that listening could be used to do this um, in the 1930s. And then when the Popular Front came to power and started the school radio program, some of the people who created these first school broadcasts came out of this, this group of people who had developed this kind of pedagogy of the ear. And I think what was important about them is they saw what they were doing, not only, I mean, the pedagogy that they described, which was based on, um, I think, finding a perfect balance between activity and passivity and listening. One where you, on the one hand, you know, if you listen to a broadcast from Paris, you might learn how to better articulate certain words, but at the same time, you know, you would be learning to express yourself and, and, and sort of perform this kind of active uh, citizenship. Um, this was a pedagogy that, you know, that was based on this kind of balance between activity and passivity, not necessarily on any sort of political ideology, right? I mean, the people mm-hmm. who developed this pedagogy didn't necessarily have a political angle. But what I found really interesting is that, you know, when the Popular Front creates these school broadcasts, they bring in some of these pedagogical reformers, and almost immediately, this pedagogy that they have been developing in their classrooms in Paris suddenly is charged with having this kind of political taint, <laughs> mm-hmm. even though, in fact, there wasn't anything very political about it at all. But its association with the Popular Front led to this sort of huge outcry among teachers across France and among um, the far right in particular, who, you know, who saw the installation of radios in public school classrooms as a kind of, you know, totalitarian education. Right. In the last chapter of the book, Rebecca, you move from metropole to the imperial context um, with a focus on colonial Algeria. And you're really looking in this chapter at how how the politics of everyday life and of radio kind of converge and connect to colonial policymaking in Algeria. You make the point in this chapter that listening was, quote, a new site of struggle between Algerians and the French colonial state. So could you tell us a little bit about how listening functioned in this way? Well, I think that... um what became most interesting to me when I looked at the emergence of radio in the colonies is that, you know, radio is introduced primarily by the colonial state and by some private citizens who create Radio Algiers in the early 1930s. And they don't really see radio as having an importance to the indigenous population at all. But what begins to happen is that as more and more Algerians buy radio, and as they listen to broadcasts, especially 
um, broadcast that were not only transmitted by Radio Algiers, but by foreign um, broadcasters in Arabic, um, including Nazi Germany, fascist Italy, um, stations in Egypt. Um, the French colonial state suddenly became extremely concerned about Algerian listeners. And instead of, I guess, evaluating the content of the broadcasts um, that were coming from these foreign powers, the colonial state's response was to actually begin surveilling listeners to try and figure out how Algerians were interpreting what they heard. <laughs> and and in, in some ways, uh, what radio listening meant to them. And so it's in this context that I think radio becomes this kind of, this or listening becomes this kind of set, set of struggle between the colonial state and between Algerians themselves, because um, the, the French police and colonial civil servants are extremely anxious about listening because they imagine almost immediately that it must be this kind of subversive act. Mm. And they become fixated on trying to determine how and when and where Algerians are listening and and what it means for the stability of the colonial state. Throughout the book, Rebecca, you're kind of grappling with these questions of, is radio propaganda? Is it something that belongs to everyday life? Is it bottom up? Is it top down? Um, what's the interaction between those things? How is it surveillance? How might it be a tool of, well, I don't even know. I mean, maybe that should be more of a question. Is it a tool of resistance in this period? What, how, how are you dealing with some of those kind of power dynamics uh, in the book? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, I, I see both of those currents happening in the 1930s. And I, mm -hmm. and I think that it's not until really the very end of the 1930s that I think the French state um, really reaches any sort of, any sort of consensus about um, the dangers of radio as a source of propaganda. And so in some ways, I feel like throughout the, the 20s and 30s, you have situations where radio is used by individuals to to imagine themselves in particular ways or to resist the imp imposition of certain kinds of ideas. Um, so when an Algerian um, goes to, you know, the Café Mort and listens to a foreign broadcast in Arabic, is he necessarily participating in a form of resistance? Or is that something that only the colonial state imagines um, is happening? And I think what, what I'm trying to document is the struggle to try and figure that out in the 1930s, because I think it can be a little bit of both, um, depending on the actors that you're talking about at a particular moment. When can we start to speak of radio as a, as a real tool of anti-colonialism and anti imperialism well i think certainly france's diplomatic enemies in the 1930s were already beginning to use radio as a way to incite anti-colonial sentiment in france mm -hmm. um, or in the french colonies what is more difficult to determine is how successful they were at actually doing that right mm -hmm. um, because one of i mean one of the arguments that i make in this chapter about colonial broadcasting is that the French colonial police and the civil servants who worked for the state really couldn't decide how much of an effect hostile foreign radio propaganda was having on the Algerian population. And part of it was that they couldn't decide when listening became a political act, right? Mm -hmm. um, so is listening a political act when you sit in the cafe in a group and you hear a broadcast? Or is it a political act if everyone in the cafe stands up and says, down with France, Right. I mean, what, what is the moment at which listening ceases to become something which might be passive and becomes an active form of, of resistance? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I would be very reluctant to say that radio played a huge role in anti-colonial resistance in this period, because it's very hard to measure that. But mm -hmm. it's clear that it was already becoming 
incredibly important. And what you can see, I suppose, in this period is really the beginning of the Second World War. It's actually in the colonies that you see the French engaging, French bureaucrats engaging with questions about propaganda, surveillance, um, even things like jamming, like trying to block foreign signals. This is the place where you see that kind of thing happening first, Mm -hmm. right? Before it even happens in the metropole. So in some ways, there's a more, I guess, sort of sophisticated conversation happening about something like propaganda in North Africa than you see in France until really the late 1930s. So this is a really naive question maybe coming out of that, not just for anti-colonial purposes, but like, is there guerrilla radio <laughs> in this period that you're looking at? Like, can you, I mean, everything is so sort of preliminary in terms of the technologies, like what sorts of radio are out there that maybe are off the, like, do we have, is, is that something that exists in this period, I guess? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, it's, <laughs> this is not something that I worked on. Um, specifically in the book, although mm-hmm. I can tell you what I know about its existence. Um, and, and there's another scholar at the University of Michigan, Derek Valiant, who's written a really great article about this. Mm-hmm. Um, there were, because there were so many radio amateurs in the late 20s and early 30s, that is people who had their own radio transmitters um, at home, there were people who engaged in what you might call guerrilla guerrilla radio broadcast. anachronistic to call it that. <laughs> in this period, um, there were people who did that. Um, and there's some evidence of both groups on the far left and groups on the far right, like the French Communist Party, but also like the, mm-hmm. the PSF, for example, mm-hmm. using radio to engage in political propaganda in the early 1930s. Certainly during the Spanish Civil War, for example, both mm-hmm. the fascists and the Republicans were using radio, and they were broadcasting directly into France to try and reach support of their respective causes across the border mm-hmm. um, in France. So there, I'm not sure I would call it guerrilla radio, but it's not official state. <laughs> state. Yeah. So that kind of thing is, is definitely happening in the 1930s. The French response to this is kind of interesting, which is that the state creates something called the police de l'air in the late 1930s that is essentially monitoring private transmitters. And if you had a private transmitter, you had to register it with the state. So they knew it existed. Um, but there was a kind of service that monitored these, you know, these transmissions and would shut down people who were engaging in political propaganda if they could mm-hmm. catch them. Again, this is not a huge, it's, it's not a major subject of the book, except no. that I do think um, one of the things I find kind of interesting about this is that the state did target these illegal broadcasters mm-hmm. rather than going after going after them in an opposite, in the opposite way, which is to say that jamming, right, jamming a radio signal to prevent people from hearing it is something which is technically possible from the mid-1930s onward. But the French state is very reluctant to engage in that kind of practice. So while they would shut down these kind of rogue private broadcasters when they found them, there was no attempt by the French state in this period to target opponents of the government from mm-hmm. other countries, right? So, you know, the German, the Nazis were broadcasting propaganda into France, you know, mm-hmm. quite heavily at the end of the 1930s. And there really was not a significant attempt to jam these stations until the war started. Hmm. It's just really interesting with respect to the other forms of censorship at work in, mm-hmm. in, in the period. That's really fascinating. 
Well, and and there's a question there. I mean, you know, one of the things I argue in the book is that to me, this is very much tied to this notion of the right to listen that emerges in this period. And that there's a there's a widespread sense among French radio audiences, but the public at large, that the right to tune into foreign broadcasts is something which belongs to French people. And that it's only it's only in these fascist countries that are on our borders where the mm-hmm. state actually tries to limit and restrict people's listening in this kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, there's very much a discourse of that that you see um, in the late 1930s in, in France in a wide variety of publications. And that to me is, is kind of fascinating, particularly when you think about, you know, the lead up to the second world war and France's mm-hmm. uh, supposed, you know, failures um, in 1939 and 1940 to really deal with the reality of, of what was coming. Mm-hmm. You close the book, Rebecca, with the story of Paris Mondial, the short wave station that uh, begins operations in 1938. So can you tell us a kind of short version of the story and how you use it uh, to end uh, the work that you're doing in the book? Yeah, I mean, Paris Mondial um, is a shortwave station that's created in the spring of 1938. Um, and the idea is that, it, it, so some people see it as a precursor to RFI, Radio France Internationale, which comes out after, after the Second World War. And it's really, it's a replacement station uh, for something called the Postcolonial, which was a, a shortwave colonial station that had been built in 1931, but which had always had a rather terrible reputation um, as, as something that no one really listened to. And there's a fair amount of evidence to suggest that, that not a lot of settlers around the world listened to this. So Paris Mondial was a kind of outgrowth of the cabinet's growing concerns about foreign propaganda in 1930, well, 37, 38, 39, when it became clear that, um, you know, Mussolini and Hitler had this sort of complex radio agenda and that France really needed to get in on the game. Hmm. Um, but the idea with Paris Mondial was that it wasn't just going to broadcast to the colonies, it was going to broadcast to the world. And so there were broadcasts directed at Latin America at the United States, um, at Eastern Europe, in a, variety, in a variety of languages. And I think the reason I chose to end the book with it is because, you know, this is a station which has a, a, a terrible reputation, again. So it kind of shows up in um, stories about the start of the Second World War and is used in many ways to talk about the naivete of the French in the domain of radio propaganda, and the fact that the French couldn't really grapple with or respond effectively to um, to the Nazis in the, in the domain of radio. But part of why I found it interesting is that um, when I started looking at the responses to the station and even the questionnaires that the French government sent out about Paris Mondial, what they were most interested in was whether or not people could hear the station, not whether the programs that were on the station were effective in any kind of way in representing France's interest right, on the eve of the Second World War. Mm-hmm. Um, instead, politicians were concerned about whether or not people could hear it. And this to me seems like a kind of continuation of the logic that I see emerging related to this idea of the radio nation and listening as an expression of citizenship, right? That in France, restricting listening or engaging in the kind of heavy-handed propaganda that the Nazis did, which was sort of attack, you know, attack mode of, of, you know, attacking French policies, of attacking, you know, French diplomacy, that this was seen in some ways as being kind of unacceptable mm-hmm. um, on the a lot of the people who were involved in, in Paris Mondial. And instead, what they wanted to do was use the station to present, you know, this kind of universal vision of France. And so I think this is one of the reasons why you get this sort of obsession with where the broadcast can be heard, not how effective they were or how people were responding to them, but rather could just be heard. 
because there was a kind of assumption about what listening, an assumption that listeners would sort of accept and buy into this vision of France if, if they could just hear it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think for me, that that marks a kind of into the book because the Second World War, of course, marks a big shift in the way that people imagined the radio nation. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if the radio nation was imagined as this kind of common national space that everyone could participate in um, and where there were these serious debates about listening, what then happens when, you know, the nation is split and then, mm-hmm. you know, halfway through the war, who becomes the voice of the nation again? Well, it's this person actually in a foreign country who's broadcasting right. in France. Right. Um, and I think that, you know, one of the arguments that has often been made about about radio during the war is that it forced people to shift the way they thought about listening because they suddenly had to um, trust the voice that was coming from abroad. But I Mm -hmm. think that in some ways, the history that I tell of radio in the thirties is one of sort of constant contestation over what it means to listen. Mm -hmm. And think about people listening to resistance broadcasts during the second world war or identifying with this kind of distant voice. It's it's maybe not as foreign as we might think because Mm. French people had already been fighting for much of the 1930s about what it meant to listen. That's really interesting. They already had this skill set, right. To contest and to think about, the very active listening in kind of oppositional ways. And would you say, would you argue, Rebecca, that they have that skill set when it comes to listening in a way that they don't um, when it comes to looking or, and I guess I would include reading in, in that? Or like, is the, is the listening skill set distinct, apart from being like a distinct set of senses, is it distinct politically from the visual? That's a good question. Yeah. I mean, I do think that listening requires a sense of sort of engagement that is very different than mm-hmm. than looking at an image that that hits you in the eye, right? I mean, there's a mm-hmm. of, there's a kind of activity that's required to turn on your radio and turn the dial to pick up the signal that you want to hear. There's a mm-hmm. there's a level of of I suppose voluntary choice in that act that to me seems actually a bit different than what would happen if you were walking down the street and so looking at a propaganda poster on a wall. Right. And I don't want to ask you to write or to tell me about a book you didn't write too much, but um, just in terms of the post 45 period, I'm just wondering how much of the landscape that you discuss in this book, how much of it is picked up again? Like, is it, is it the case that world war two is an interruption and then there is a return to some of the debates and issues or or does the war mark a kind of break and is the landscape of the interwar years and what radio and the politics of sound look like in that period is it sort of in the dust um, in the in the post 45 period. Well, I mean, I think the war is a break in the sense that it it not only, I suppose, cements the relationship that people have between listening and a certain kind of political engagement, right? I mean, that becomes a kind of life or death thing during the war, right? Mm-hmm. Um, even more than it was during the 1930s. I mean, radio is how you get your information during the war far more than, than print media. And I think that this idea of listening as a form of political engagement becomes much more important in also because what you're listening to during the war is, of course, much, much more highly politicized, right? Because mm-hmm. listening to the BBC is not acceptable. Um, it's against the law. 
it comes with penalties. So that changes to a certain extent, you know, the political stakes that are involved in listening. But I think what I see happening in, in, the, in the immediate post-war period is that this this notion that broadcasting in a particular state broadcasting was supposed to represent the people and the nation is sort of brought back by the post-war governments. And certainly radio and tele- and then later television become central to nation building in you know, the Fourth and Fifth Republics, um, as other people have documented, that, that, that media are seen even more importantly as ways of cementing a certain kind of um, national unity or national consciousness than they were even in the 1930s. So I think that's where the continuity is. And the idea in particular that everyone should have access to radio remains very important in the 1950s, where you see efforts to um, ensure that, again, disabled veterans, the elderly, that these people all have access to radio technology um, in a way that was quite different than in the 1930s or had more of a push in the 1930s. Well, Rebecca, I've taken up a lot of your time, but I have one last question, which is, what are you working on now? Well, I'm working on an article right now, in fact, about um, radio and disability in the immediate post-World War II period. I'm looking at um, a radio program called La Tribune de l'Invalide, which was expressly designed for people with disabilities. And I'm working with a series of letters I have from disabled listeners from all across France who are reacting to this program. Um, But the bigger project that I'm working on is a history of polio across the, the landscape of the 20th century. Huh. Um, so I got, I got interested in questions about disability in the body and representations of people with disabilities when I was working on this book, in particular the second chapter, and, and sort of the questions it raises about notions of able-bodiedness um, and listening and, um, and difference. But um, I got interested in polio in part because the, the guy who, who runs this radio program that I'm writing about was a polio survivor, um, trying to uncover how the state dealt with a massive epidemic disease in the 1950s um, and the ways that it failed has become really quite interesting to me. Well, you keep me posted on that project. Rebecca, I just want to thank you so much for joining me and for writing the book. Thank you. 